Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your uttering by external, the braiding of your hair and the putting of on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children. If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the women as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindrance. This is God's word. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Um, And thank you, Joy. So this week, uh, I was in an email exchange with Wayne, who is our bookkeeper. And uh, Wayne goes to the village, and uh, many of you have never met Wayne, but, but trust me, you're all very grateful for Wayne. Uh, he, he makes sure so many things are organized. He's the most bookkeepery bookkeeper of all bookkeepers. But Wayne emails a lot, and they are not short emails. He, uh, he gives a lot of information. Yeah, John is, is laughing right now. There's, there are a lot of words, a lot of thoughts, a lot of information, um, and some sarcasm often in the, uh, in the emails. And so I, I was in an email chain with Wayne, and, uh, and I, you know, as I often do, I was like, here comes one from Wayne. A woo, okay, five paragraphs. And I kind of responded, but it was uh, in an email with somebody else, and, uh, and Wayne quite quickly uh, noted that I'd completely missed the point of his email and had read it all wrong and had answered a question he wasn't asking at all. And uh, that got to be exposed in front of someone else who was copied on these emails for me, right? Um, I don't know if any of you ever do things like this. I, I do that from time to time. And I think a, a similar thing can happen with sections of the Bible like this one. Um, especially when we read them as we do tonight, outside of the flow of their original context, as we often do when we want to learn about topics. And so what happens with a text like this is you might say, uh, what does the Bible say about being married? Or, or somebody might ask the question of what roles should men or women have or something like that. And they go to look for the texts in the Bible that talk about this stuff and, and read them. And often we, we read them out of their context, but also with a cursory understanding of what is being said. And we can make some really big assumptions and we can severely misread it. And as I, as I read this today, I thought, ooh, I think, and as I read this, sorry, this week, and as I really dug into it, I said, I think I, think I and I think we have often really missed some of the, just the, the depth of this text um, because we just, we just, blaze over it too fast, and we read it outside of its context. So I, I want to I show you what I mean about that uh, under the heading of the calling for wives and the calling for husbands here. And then I want to bring us back to the principle that's being taught. And trust me, it's not just about marriage. Um, it really isn't. So if you came today and you went, 
I didn't mean to sign up for a marriage seminar. You're, it's not. It's really not what it is, though it is very, very applicable. So, first of all, um, the calling for wives. I mean, this is uh, this is this is the text where if you want to just really be accused of uh, of signing up for the patriarchy, you can just go ahead and tell everybody you're reading this this text, right? And like, it's uh, this is tough. It, it's like in today in 2022, if you were to throw this up on your Instagram feed, you would lose friends, right? You would. Um, it can feel very diminishing when you read it too fast and out of context. I mean, things like be subject, um, okay. Um, we're going to tell women how to dress, apparently, uh, is how it feels, right? Um, which, by the way, I've not spent much of my ministry time doing this. Zero so far. Um, be quiet. That, that one's scary, isn't it? Like, telling, who, are, we really, are we really doing that uh, these days? Um, how should we feel about these things? How, how should we feel? And I think similar to that email, we can misread this to, to view it as a critique when actually that's just not the context of what's going on at all. I can't really go back into the, the last six to eight weeks of what we've been teaching here at Mission, but we have been going into all the portions that, that come before this and it's really critical. Peter is writing this book to an entire church, a, a group of churches maybe, who he is framing as aliens and strangers. And, and what that means is that these people are outsiders. They are not in, they are not in power. They are not influential. Uh, some of these are Jewish converts to Christianity. Some of these are brand new believers. And by being Christians in their context, they were immediately in the minority. They were outsiders entirely. And so they, they understood these terms, alien, stranger, a sojourner, like somebody who's passing through a foreign land who doesn't have a home. And all of the letter is framed to people who are having that type of experience. But Peter is talking to these people and encouraging them to do something for a reason. And, and that is to be submissive people because they are on a mission to win people over to King Jesus. And he's telling that to all of them. He's saying, you all are on a mission to win people over to King Jesus, to bring them into the kingdom of God. And the method we're going to do, the method we're going to use for this is submission. And that seems very backwards and confusing, which is why he needed to teach it. But he's saying, this is how Jesus won you over, as he submitted himself unto death, and his grace is what has changed your souls. We are, we are people who are shaped in his image. We are going out with his kingdom, and the way that he brought grace to us is the way that we're going to bring grace to others. So he started by telling people to do this in their personal relationships. He's talked about doing it in their political relationships. He's talked about doing it in their work or even master-servant relationships. And now he tells them to do the same thing in their personal relationships like marriage. Peter here actually is starting with inviting women in marriages to unbelievers to influence their husbands for the kingdom of God. That's the stated purpose, so that they will be won over. He says, here's how you can influence them and bring them into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. 
he is clear to say um, criticism and nagging, and I say that because he tells them to be respectful. The opposite of that, um, the, the, the things like nagging or criticisms about their faith are not going to be effective, he tells them. If you want to be effective, that's not going to do it. But Christ-patterned service is. I mean, have you ever heard anybody, let's just take it out of the men-women relationship really quick. Have you ever heard anybody say, you know what? I didn't believe in God, but my husband criticized me so much that I thought, you know what? God is real. <laughs> now, you've never heard it, have you? There's, there's a reason. And guess what? That's just the way Christians were instructed to be. That's what, that's what Peter was telling them. Look, there's a number of things. You could worry about people. You could criticize people. You could pester people. But how many people have you ever heard who said, my friend, you know, they were just so deathly anxious that I was going to hell that one day I thought, you know what? I love Jesus. No, you haven't heard it, have you? You haven't heard that they were nagged, that they were criticized. You don't ever hear it. it. It's ineffective strategy for reaching somebody for Jesus. So these people in their, in their lives with just unbelievers, they were taught, how do you, how do you love these people? You, you are, you're, you're good. You, you're quiet. You're submissive. You work among them and, and show them the impact Jesus has had on your life. That's how you're going to influence them. And the master-servant relationship that we talked about last week, it was, it was kind of like work as if you're working for God even when the person doesn't deserve it. Why? Because that's how you're going to influence them. In your political setting, um, you're going to submit yourself to the authorities. And we know Peter and Paul would both say, if the authorities are asking you to do something that's disobedient to God, then don't do that. But in every way that you can, be submissive to the, the authorities. Why? Because that's going to be a way that your light shines. Um, that's how you're going to exhibit Christ among people who aren't believers. And there's some extended time spent on some details here. The, the basic sections, though, to men and women are about the same. There's a little illustration I have of just the words of this text. See, there's like, likewise wives, likewise husbands. See those two sections? They're about the same length. And then there's this whole extended section in here that's like the hard part, I think. That's the one that feels a little weird. And it, to me, feels very much like it's an aside. And I, I read up on this. I think this is true. It's an aside speaking to a very specific situation. And the question would be, why so much instruction to women? Why is there so much extra instruction to women? And the answer here is in every single scenario that, that Peter has been talking to, he's been talking to the Christians as the minority. Then he talked to the servants, right? He talked to the people out of political power, out of power in their workplace. He's always giving more instruction to the people who are on the lower end of the situation in their cultural context, but who he's calling to become influential. Every single one of them he's calling to become influential. More was said to those under the government, more was said to the servants, and here more is said to the women because he's suggesting they have an opportunity. And that gets missed when we read it too fast. Now, of course, this does get, it gets specific, and it does include things that can make 
me feel uncomfortable, at least. I don't know about you. Telling people how to do their hair and dress and to be gentle and quiet feels very uncomfortable to me. Um, I'm not denying that. But there is something to understanding the ancient context. We have a number of secular sources from this time that says that there was actually a, a major movement at this time among, among women in this cultural context to have very ornate hair and jewelry customs. Like there, there's one, it, it's a funny quote, but it, it essentially equates somebody's hair to like a very ornate pastry. <laughs> and it, um, like the, 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 the hair was just like, like made like, a, like an ornate pastry and that it, in the back, it looked like a basket weave. And it was just kind of saying like, this is like some really intense work that people are putting a lot of work into their hair. But the, but the interesting thing, that women specifically in this case, the, the most interesting part, the most important part is why. Why were they doing it? And the answer seems to be that it was to get attention to the self and to influence men. To get attention to the self and influence men. Now today, um, there, might be a sim- there might be similar critiques. If, you were to, if, if I were to speak, like Peter is speaking to a group of women, he's saying, look, I'm going to teach you the Christ-patterned way to, to influence the men in your life. And he says, look, we're not going to do it the way that you've done it your whole life. These are new converts. These are probably people who did that. That was their method of influencing men. He said, look, that's been the, the method you've used. I want you to lay that method down, and I want you to take on the Christ pattern of the way that Christ has influenced you. That's the one I want you to learn because it's foundational uh, to Christianity. Today, I think if we were talking in this setting, first of all, I I think that, let's say something like social media, and I don't think you would probably say it to just men and women. If I were to take an aside today and I would say, look, here's how you're used to influencing people, is you you find the the platform that's the easiest to get on where you don't have to have any face-to-face interaction, and you just spurt the most, you know, like opinionated idea you can that's going to get the most engagement. Like that's what we do as a culture. That's, that's what we do. Um, and I would say this method that we're using is not working and it lacks the power of the gospel and it lacks a Christ pattern to it. I want you to lay it down and take on a new pattern that is Christ-shaped. This is a similar conversation he's having to a method of influencing people of his day and something that we would do today as well, to take, take an aside and speak to those things. Now, you know, in our day, hair braiding and gold jewelry wearing, you know, it really isn't the way that we influence each other, right? I don't, there's never been one day where, where Michaela has, you know, walked out and I've gone like, are you trying to influence me with those earrings? Like, are you trying to change my mind? That hasn't really been the case. We have our own unique versions of that. This one's speaking to a very unique situation. And, and I, I feel like we have to trust that Peter knew what he was talking about. Even secular sources were making comments about this method of engagement of this time. And we have to ask today, how do we do that? Um, the second thing to consider here, uh, forget the hair and the gold for a second, is the idea that this, that's also complicated of being gentle and quiet. That feels uncomfortable to say, right? Um, Here's what's key to understand. Those concepts are applied throughout the Bible to every Christian. They are. 
Gentleness is one of the fruit of the Spirit, part of the fruit of the Spirit. Um, it's not a thing that's just being told to women, hey, you ladies, be gentle. It's the evidence of the Spirit-filled life is that every Christian would be gentle. It's for everybody. Um, elsewhere, you know, quietness, Paul applies to brothers, which, which could imply men and women, but it most definitely doesn't apply to just women. And this is in a, a letter that had circulated some 15 years before Peter wrote his that he would have known about, he would have read. Um, he says in 1 Thessalonians 4, we urge you brothers to aspire to live quietly. Mind your own business. Work with your hands and walk properly before outsiders. See, Paul He's saying the same thing for the same reason. Here's how you're going to influence outsiders. Not with your loudness, not with your opinions, but by quietly working and minding your own business. And that's Paul's admonition to all Christians. Here Peter is saying the same thing. He happens to be saying it to women. But it's something that, that has been applied to all Christians of all times. The same goal, reach outsiders, the same strategy. Live quietly, walk properly, and honor God in your life. Okay, I hope I've helped a bit there. Um, maybe I haven't. I hope I have. But see, the women, the women aren't the ones um, who, who are called to do much that's very different from what Christians are called to do in general. They are being given the methodology of Jesus and told, here's how you can influence in your circles. I almost forgot to mention uh, the cultural expectation of the day, we have ancient writers on this too, was that every time a woman married that they were to lay down their, their friendships and their religion and take up their husbands. And Peter very notably is not saying that at all. In fact, he, he is saying that these women have entered into a new community and that they have a faith in God that their husband does not share he actually has not suggested that they lay those things down in any way. And that's key to understand. He's encouraging them. He's empowering them. He's calling them to be an influence in their own homes. And he's giving them a strategy with gospel power. I was trying to think about uh, something in our community, and, and this is, I mean, a little bit raw, but I'll, I'll throw it out there. You might remember my recommendation to us as a church on mask wearing during COVID. And I was trying to say, like, I'm not too worried about whether or not it is morally right or wrong. That's kind of less important to me. I think there's, you can have opinions on that. That's fine. But I was suggesting to us that generally in our neighborhood and immediate community, it was seen as a sign of love and respect. And it would be something you could do to submit to people who, who had genuine fears or deep convictions would be to wear the thing. It, you, maybe you share those, those fears and convictions, maybe you don't, but I, but I was saying to us, let's wear them so that we can serve our community rather than assert our rights. Because the Christ pattern is not to assert your rights and assert yourself, it's to serve others. It's a similar thing. And I, and I equated it at the time, I said, if you went into a Muslim country 
we have a lot of data on this. You know, people have tried many things. And you, you said, you know, I'm not going to do all the head coverings things because I, I have freedom in Christ. And you just stormed in there and, and you know, you're like, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to act like an American. The gospel message that you carry will do very poorly with that method. The method that works is you go in submitting to all sorts of things you know you have freedom not to do. But you lay them down, you submit to them so that the gospel can get through. Peter is teaching a similar thing here. He's teaching a powerful strategy. Submit in order to bring life-transforming hope. So let's take a look at the call to men or husbands here. He says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the women as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so your prayers may not be hindered. I got all excited. I feel like I have to admit these things so you guys can study the Bible better than me. Um, I got all excited that I was like, I wonder, I think weaker vessel might be like referring to things that are like really valuable because of their inherent weaknesses. Like, have you, like, I, I was thinking about, I was trying to apply this to men and I was going to be like sports cars, you know? Like, if you have the like fiberglass incredible sports car, its weakness is part of its value and therefore you protect it with your whole life. And I really liked that. But that is not, when I studied into the words, it, it didn't work. So, um, I really want, I wanted it for us all. I wanted it for the guys because it felt so good. And then I wanted to just say to women, you're like sports cars, you know? You're like, and it, maybe that wouldn't have meant anything to you, but it would have meant something to me to say it. Um, what Peter, I mean, the word Peter uses when he talks about weaker vessel is like, is physical weakness. And that is the word. And, and I, I, have, I have a little trouble with that. I thought, you know, I, I went and got personal training done at the gym. And, uh, and I went in there and they were having me do these little rolls. Like they, they were starting you off with what babies do when they have to like lift their necks. And so I was laying on the ground and I was lifting my neck up and like trying to breathe right. And there was a woman um, about 10, 10 feet from me walking on her hands all around the gym and like pumping iron. And I was like, yeah, like she could kill me easily. And so when, you know, I hear this, I'm like physical weakness. Like I know how much I bench, I'm aware. And, but here's the thing. At the same time that that lady was doing her handstands, there was a guy up on like rings, like doing all these like flips and stuff. And it's like, I suppose there's something to if two people work out at the same level, like typically there's some strength that a man does have. I, there's something to that. Physiologically, um, that, that seems to be what Peter's talking about. But a key thing to note is what he is not talking about, which I think often gets blown over. And a lot of times when, when a man preaches this passage or teaches this, this gets actively ignored. In Peter making a differentiation in physical strength, what he is absolutely not doing, and what many of it have sadly interpreted him to have been saying, is he is not referring to emotional or rational capabilities or any other capabilities at all. He's just saying something about physical stature. That's it. I mean, I've heard this said many, many times. I've heard, I've heard statements about 
that, that women don't have the same fortitude as men. I'm like, I, I, think, I think I've seen a lot of them that do. Peter isn't talking about that stuff at all. If, if there is any differentiation in calling for men and women, it isn't because of their capability. Other than maybe what Peter is saying is perhaps to a, a man and a woman who work out at the same level, the man might be able to lift a bigger box. That's really all we've got going for us there, is that physical potential. But he's not teaching us something about capability. Actually, emotions are powerful. I was thinking when Joy was up here praying, like hearing her emotion made that prayer stronger, in my opinion. Um, women are not rationally less capable. That is garbage. There were, in biblical times, women were leading countries, okay? And Solomon honored it. There's, there's a good reason for that. I think the only thing we're really supposed to get from, the, from Peter saying this and God creating some differentiation between men and women, which we do believe here, is it's teaching us a lesson about the Trinity. And here's what I mean by that. The Bible clearly speaks of God as Father. And that's actually not to say, like, God, God is described in non-male words at other times. It's not to assign a gender to God. But God is spoken of as Father. At other times, as Son or, or synonymously as a servant of God. And other times, as Holy Spirit, as one who comforts and guides and convicts. And that God exists in an eternally loving relationship and a community of mutual honor and love. And it is not that God the Father is incapable of what the Spirit might do or that Jesus is inferior to God. They are one. They are one. But Jesus subjects himself to the will of his Father. He lays his life down. The Father calls and enables. The Spirit comforts and confronts and does the will of God they, they have different roles. They're differentiated. They're not exactly the same. And God is teaching us to do and to understand who he is eternally, that he is always loving and serving and honoring and submitting, not because of inequality. If God created humans in a differentiated way, it wasn't for the sake of inequality, it was for the sake of teaching us about God's very self, giving us insight into his nature, into the nature of the one who created us, men and women, jointly in his image. Genesis 1.27, man, male and female were created in his image. And therefore, any diminishing of the other even if there are differentiations, um, any diminishing is a sin against that person and against God. But also missing our differentiation, our differences can lead us to missing God's gift of diversity. Now something I've noticed is there are two great values in the human experience. There are many, but two are unity and diversity. We believe deeply in a sense, we need unity. We need to be unified. And we need diversity. Things should not all be the same. You shouldn't take, you know, you shouldn't say because one person is different that they are not human. 
There needs to be diversity within the, the concept of humanity. We need both of these things. And it seems to me that evil tempts us all throughout history to diversify what God has intended to be united and to unite what God has celebrated and created diverse. And if you're curious about that, you can go study the scriptures on it. There's example after example, but I'll give you one freebie. The church and the civil magistrate, diverse or unified? Ah, we have unified it before, and it's been a terrible idea. The church and the civil magistrate should be diverse. They should be different. This probably covers, there, there are so many areas where this applies. Now, you didn't see any of this coming, did you? You thought I was talking to husbands. Well, there's, men are called to honor their wives here because of their distinctness. That's what it, it says, honor them because they are different. Another thing here that's often missed is the depth of engagement that men are called to, and I, I fall so short of this. And the fact that men and not the women are warned with, spirit, with serious spiritual consequences. Um, it says here that men are called to love their wives in an understanding way, and to me, when I've read that in this translation, it feels weak. It sounds accommodating, like poor you to me. I don't, maybe that didn't strike you that way. That's how it felt to me, like in an understanding way, because there's that word weaker vessel in there, which talks about physical frailty. But it makes me feel like it's like, ah, uh, poor ladies, you're, it's just hard for you. Like, does it come across that way to you? That's how it sort of can feel when I read it fast. But that's not what it means. It, literally, the, the form or the words there with, you know, in an understanding way means like deep knowledge of the subject. Which is to say this, it's saying live with your wives by understanding them deeply. One commentator I read said it's a movement toward the person that almost becomes similar to the spirit's inhabiting of the human body. Which means like to get entirely inside and understand the depths and nuances of their thinking and their mind and their heart and their soul and their story. Now I've known a lot of women, strong women. Um, I grew up in settings with women leaders. My mom is the, has the education and was a business owner. Um, I learned to be convicted and active from her and to speak up from her. Um, I've known many strong women, but I know zero who don't want to be deeply known and understood and seen, right? And to share life with somebody who understands their motives and what's going on deep within them. Nobody wants to be just like put up with because of their weakness, but that's not what Peter was saying. He says, we're different. Honor the difference. Understand the difference. And know the other deeply. This made me think of the newest uh, James Bond uh, film, Die Another Day, right? It's clear to me that the Bond series is moving to have women at the center of it. I, if, you know, there might be a slight spoiler in here. The movie's been out like years, so sorry. But, but Bond is like in the movie, like he meets a new 007 that has replaced him, and it's a woman of color, right? And, and that's like, and he's like, what? Say what? You know, and, um, but... In this movie, he, he grows to respect her. 
He dies to save a woman and daughter. But not only that, he knows the pain and the story of the woman that he dies for. He loves this woman. He sacrifices his life and his loss is mourned by the women that he dies for. Now, no matter, I'm not saying the intent of the writer is to show us a biblical principle, but they're painting a picture here of the type of man that we know we want around. Like these scenes are, there's still a little womanizing in James Bond. I'm not, I'm not saying it's all good. But there is some, there's a reason that that understanding who he's dying for, he doesn't despise their strength. He, he engages with it and gives his life to enable that they would go on and that they would live. Okay, so the man in the marriage here is to honor and understand and love and reflect the nature of God. And if he doesn't, it says his prayers are going to be hindered. And here's why, because if he's going to have any imaging of God the Father, he can't expect to, to have, you know, for God to reward him when he doesn't love the way that God the Father loves. Like his calling might be high, but the responsibility is high as well. This is not chauvinist literature. This is God saying, if you don't, if you don't image me, I'm not going to be helping you. Right. So I hope that clears up some misconceptions we would see if we read it too quickly. I'm not saying it fits perfectly in our modern society. It doesn't, it shouldn't. If we're hearing from God on the subject, we shouldn't expect him to come along and say, you all in 2022 nailed it. <laughs> You'd expect God to have, you know, be able to go, you know, I, there's deeper waters I'd like you all to tread into here. Um, but now I want to restate the principle of all this and how marriage factors in. The whole letter is framed again, I said this at the beginning, to people who, whose lives were to be as aliens and strangers. That is to say they are God's people. They're away from home. They're outsiders. Their calling is to invite people into the kingdom, to win people over with mercy in a Jesus-patterned way, is what we were saying last week. And they, they do it by extending mercy, because mercy is how we all have been included in God's kingdom. There's no other way. Without the sacrificial love of Jesus, none of us are here. So to gain other people and to influence them, we're going to have to do it by sacrificial love. And this is spiritually powerful stuff. Jesus gave us mercy by sacrificing his life in our place. He washed his disciples' feet. He taught us to serve. He told us, if you were going to be great in this kingdom, you're going to be like a servant. And he restored people after they betrayed and doubted him because he is merciful. And then he sends his disciples and therefore us out to do the same. We go out with a message of mercy proclaimed in the way of Jesus, the humble, sacrificial Savior. And marriage is one way that we learn these concepts. I believe it's especially in a Christian marriage, but also in any marriage at all. I've married people who aren't Christians, and as we prepared for marriage, I've said, look, I'm going to show you a pattern in the Bible and, um, and see if you can't relate to it. And they can like, I haven't want, had one person go, you know what? Like, that whole idea of, like, sacrificial love it doesn't seem to apply here. It does. The Apostle Paul teaches one of the more um, well-known passages on marriage is in Ephesians 5. And it has some of the same stuff that feels like when it enters into our cultural moment, feels a little, it can be a little uncomfortable. 
But look how it's patterned after God's relationship to us. It says, wives, submit to your husbands. Why, right? You're submitting to them as to the Lord. You've learned this already. He's saying to these women, you've learned this in your relationship with God. Now apply it in your marriage. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And, and, and I know for some women that's like, ah! But this time, in this particular scripture, it's twice as long to the men. And there's a reason for that. Listen to it. Now, what's the calling for the men in this relationship? Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her or perfect her, having cleansed her with the washing of water of the word that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who, lo- who loves his wife loves himself. For no, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes, cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, Paul says, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. It feels all tangled up, right? Paul, is, ta- is he talking about husbands and wives more? Is he talking about our relationship to God more? It's, the truth is it's both, because Paul is saying here that marriage, and he reaches all the way back into Genesis, Genesis 2.24, where it says that you know, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, and they become one. He's reaching all, back, all the way back into the book of Genesis and saying the intent of marriage from the get-go was to show us what it's like to enter into relationship with God. It's a metaphor. It's a living metaphor that invites us into understanding the relationship between people and God. And he ties it to the present, and he said the mystery of marriage is it always is illustrating Jesus and God's people to the world and in our own lives. When a man and a woman who couldn't be more diverse, and some, like, think about diversity, like, I mean, if, if you've, you know, there's that Jerry, there's that uh, Seinfeld episode where he meets his, like, the woman who's exactly him, and he's like, at first, he's like, wow, this is great, you know, and then she's just as snarky as he is, and she, you know, and he's, he's like, oh, you know, go away. Um, there's, that never happens, right? You never meet your, your double and, and get into a relationship with them. You don't. You meet somebody different. You, you enter into an exercise of diversity, but also an exercise of incredible unity where you're going to say, like, we are one. You're gonna, I'm going to let you know me more than anybody in the world knows me. You're going to see my flaws more. It's the least safe place to be, right? It's the least safe but the most safe. Like, you're going to see everything about me. You're going to see me in my worst and most intimate moments. There's diversity, there's unity, but there's a choice to serve and to give our lives to one another, to forgive one another, to sacrifice for each other. And in doing that, anybody that, that engages in an exercise like that gets insight into the gospel, which is that God gives us what we do not deserve, 
and that we are accepted by grace, unmerited favor alone, despite who we are. Of course, this also means you do not need to get married because the reality of being one of God's people can be experienced without it. It's a profound way that you can experience it, but you don't have to. Um, you can experience this relationship with God before marriage, after marriage, for those who have lost a spouse, and in lifelong singleness. Paul, who wrote this section in Ephesians 5, was single. Um, and we're not sure. There's actually some compelling evidence that he was either widowed or divorced um, by the way that he speaks in 1 Corinthians 7. And so this is not only applicable to married people. The concept is one that can be understood by anyone, but it is taught to us in marriages, whether we're in one or grew up in one or observe them. They are meant by God to teach us the power of grace and unity and diversity. They teach us when they're healthy. They teach us when, we're un when they're unhealthy. Think about it. How many opinions on life did you form based on your experiences of marriages and relationships, whether in the positive or the negative? That you look back and you go, that's not good. I'm never doing that. Or you go, I hope for that. I want to see more of that. And the point of this letter from Peter is that marriages can be profoundly powerful and places of change. Interestingly, one of, the, one of the fathers of the church, as he's called, one of the most influential philosophers in history, to whom we owe many of the values of Western civilization, which we all hold if we're here, um, the, great, the convert to Christianity, Augustine of Hippo, tells us a little story about his parents. And I'm just going to read you a short portion of it. But he, uh, and, and when he says you here, he's speaking of Christ. He's writing about his mother. And he said, she served her husband and did all she could to win him to you, to Jesus. Speaking of you to him by her conduct, by which you made her beautiful. And finally, when her husband was at the end of his earthly days, she gained him for you. And one of the most influential people in, in Christianity watched his mother win his father over at the end of his life. And he said, and this man watched his mother serve and love and shine Jesus Christ into that marriage until his father finally accepted it. Now, who was weak and who was strong in that marriage? Right? Who was weak and who was strong? His mother exemplified what we saw in Jesus, what the writers of James Bond stumbled upon, right? Someone who is strong, laying his life down, serving to save the weak. Augustine's mother was strong. Her husband came to see that he was the one who was weak in his faith by the observation of her strength that she exhibited to him through her weakness. Did you get that? He observed her strength that she exhibited through weakness by serving. That's what Jesus taught us. You want to be great? You want to be strong? Use weakness. You want to change the world? Be gentle. You want to get your opinion across? Be quiet. That is how Jesus saved your soul. 
And that's how we are sent into this world. And we can learn it profoundly in marriage. Because it is by grace that all of us have been saved. The invitation this evening is to a table that Jesus set for his disciples. And we know that when he went to the cross, what does it say? He didn't, even, he didn't open his mouth. He didn't defend his cause. He went there and he laid his life down and he served. At that table where he set this, he also washed his disciples' feet. And that's where he told them, here's your pattern for taking this kingdom out into the world. How's the Roman kingdom doing? In which Peter was writing this letter. It's long gone. How's Jesus' kingdom doing? It's still here. It's growing. It's growing among the poor. It's growing where it's persecuted. It's growing where people serve. It's powerful. So this is where we come to affirm that our salvation was brought to us by a servant and where we receive his commission to us to go out into the world and make disciples. And we use the same pattern in our lives, in our marriages, in our relationships with outsiders, in our political lives, in our workplaces. It is the pattern by which grace goes out to people. We're going to take two moments, uh, two minutes here, sorry, to, uh, to just reflect on these things and to confess before God. If, if there is one thing that we Christians struggle with the most, it's believing that weakness is strong. It's believing that grace actually works. I am the chief of misbelieving this. So let's confess before him now and ask him for his help and his guidance. And then the table is open. And what that means is that we will come and receive a servant's heart, one who understands us deeply and let him shape who we are and how we operate. I'll pray for us and then leave two minutes of silence. Father in heaven, you have profoundly worked in our lives. The fact that we're gathered here before you is incredible. Um, it means that we've understood that we, uh, on our own, in our own power, have, have not found our, the right way. We are sinful, we're deeply flawed, and we have seen you and we have heard of you hanging on a cross, not opening your mouth, accepting a punishment that you did not deserve, and we have seen that that was for us and that it was powerful and that it was love. Jesus, your people should be patterned after you. We want to follow after you, but it feels all wrong and ineffective. It feels like it won't work. Teach us the power of the gospel deep within our hearts. What do we need to confess to you, Jesus? Open our eyes to see it as we pray.